April 20, in 1999, in Colorado, was a sunny but still wintry day. It was a Tuesday. And at mid-morning, people were busy with their works at offices, schools, homes. An ordinary day, like many others. And she was an ordinary teenage girl, wearing jeans, checkered, and those boxy shoes that were fashionable then. Regular run-ins with her parents. An American girl like thousands of others. And at 11 a.m. that morning, she, in the school library, was asked a question. Do you believe in God? And she was asked that question without any warning, but with a gun against her head. And she said yes. Do you believe in God? Well, if the answer is in the affirmative, as I guess it will be for the majority of you, then you are in a large company. Many people inside and outside churches believe that there is a God. Do you believe in God, says the Apostle James? Good. And so do the demons, and they shudder. So when we say we believe in God, what exactly do we mean? Believe that God exists? That there is something somewhere out there that does something or other? And what impact is God and believing in God supposed to have on our world and on our everyday life? And what consequences does that belief have in our daily life? Or does, at the end of the day, it not make much of a difference? We live our life just like everybody else. And where is our belief in God different from the demon's belief in God or from the belief of a significant part of the general public that there exists a God. Now, that is a wide-ranging and an all-encompassing and also a difficult question. It's a question that we cannot try to attempt to answer in full. But this morning, we will listen to God's word in Daniel 3, to better understand at least some aspects of what it means to believe in God. And the focus this morning is on the verses 16 to 18 in the chapter 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so... Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, 
and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. But before we turn to this declaration of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in itself let us briefly look at the background against which Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego make this declaration. A couple of weeks ago we considered Daniel 1. And you may remember that the book Daniel plays itself out at the time that Judah was in exile, around 600 before Christ. The sin of the people of Judah had become too much for the Lord, and after centuries of patience, they were taken away from the promised land, and the Davidic dynasty was gone. And God's promise to Israel, as a special nation, it looked empty, gone. Nothing special, if you looked around, were left. They were a conquered people, like so many others. And they looked around, and ostensibly there was nothing left to mark them out as separate. And that is how we may feel today. Now Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were children of the Jewish elite. They were capable... And they were well trained, and they were taken by Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon. And there the king had them trained in that special school for the administration of his new empire. They were to have a career in the big, wide world, just like many others. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was a conqueror, but he was also a builder. And not only did he build Babylon with walls so thick you could turn a chariot and horses on them, about which he later boasts in chapter 4, and other physical infrastructure, hanging gardens, the whole thing, but he also wanted to create a united, lasting empire by culturally, politically, and religiously integrating the land that he had conquered. His objective was one nation, one empire, his. And one mighty king, he. And the royal school to which Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went was one instrument in that policy. And you remember the change of their names. And now in chapter 3, his golden image is another instrument, one new unifying priority religion. Anybody, anybody who wanted to be somebody had to agree and go along. And if you wanted to be a person that mattered, a satrap, a governor, or one of these other dignitaries from that list, you had to bow for that image. Now we have skipped chapter 2, and that is the well-known story about Nebuchadnezzar's dream the dream about the future of that empire that he was trying to create. 
And in his dream, his empire and his success were shown as a huge image or statue. A golden representing his, Nebuchadnezzar's reign, succeeded by the less and less impressive phases of silver, bronze, and then iron and clay, representing the empires of the, Peds and the Persians and the Medes, the Greeks and the Romans. And each time there was decreasing power and grandeur. But that dream was even more about the stone coming from the mountain and growing into a mountain which crushes and pulverizes and overwhelms the earthly kingdoms. And that was the kingdom of Christ. And at the time, Nebuchadnezzar had been very impressed by Daniel's explanation of that dream. But it now appears that he was not impressed enough to accept that Daniel's God was, is, and always will be the ultimate sovereign. And he creates his own image, 30 meters high, with not just a golden head, but completely of gold. It must have been quite a sight, a most impressive achievement. That image representing either himself or his kingdom, the ambiguity probably deliberate, but for us in any case not relevant. And he orders in his continued attempt to force the unification of his empire, everybody to worship, not the stone or the mountain or Daniel's God, but that image. Now Nebuchadnezzar, as you would expect of him, does a thorough job. We read it in our text. And he organizes a mass celebration, an enormous happening, whipping up the emotions of the crowds. It has all the familiar elements of a mass hysteria that such events have had and no doubt will continue to have in the future. We see it here in our text. You could have seen it in the Roman amphitheaters. You could have seen it at the Nazi rallies in Nuremberg. There are the rousing speeches, the proclamations. There is the thrilling music. And there is the worship of something or somebody, an idol, a ruler, a pop star, whatever. And there is also the threat. The threat if you do not participate. It can be jail can be social or economic exclusion, can be murder, and here it is the not-too-subtle form of the fiery furnace. Now, what to do? What does our belief in God mean in the face of this rather crude request to acknowledge that not God is sovereign, but that something else needs to be relied upon and worshipped, or in the modern jargon, takes priority. And today it may not exist in this crude form anymore, but the whole approach is in many places still very much around. If you want to belong to the ruling or to the chattering classes, then you have to have a politically correct view on abortion, on euthanasia, on gay marriage, and otherwise you are ridiculed, 
considered backwards, if not bigoted, and excluded. So do we shuffle along, stay silent, keep a low profile, go through the motions, and maybe at the time tell us, well, we don't really mean it, but... Or is an other course of action called for? Now, you remember that in Chapter 1, we concluded that the book of Daniel is not about Daniel. Daniel doesn't even appear in this particular chapter. But that it is about Daniel's God. Daniel's sovereign God. And in Chapter 1, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had learned to understand and to acknowledge and testify that God is the Lord of their life, that we are his, and that we are not of this world, but also that the world is his. And this is what in our text, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego again testify first to Nebuchadnezzar, but also to us. And I would like to summarize the message of God's word this morning to you as follows. Listen to the faithful testimony about God's sovereignty. And we note two things. That God is sovereign Lord of all creation, the verses 16 and 17, and that God is sovereign Lord of our personal life, verse 18. So listen to the faithful testimony of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego about God's sovereignty. And we note in the first place that God is sovereign Lord over all creation. You see, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego served Nebuchadnezzar loyally and effectively. And he had found them ten times better in every matter of wisdom and understanding. That is what we read in chapter 1, verse 20. And they had been appointed as administrators over the province of Babylon. That's what it says in chapter 2, verse 44. Key positions in government and no doubt generating a lot of envy. And in that capacity, they hear... In chapter 3, verse 12, they still serve him, and in our text, you could still hear the envy. But in their answer to Nebuchadnezzar, they make it clear that notwithstanding their loyalty to him, there cannot be any question about whom their ultimate Lord is. God needs to be obeyed over and beyond human authorities, bosses, influential people, trendsetters, cool people, whatever. Verse 16, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. And then there follows an explanation. They are not being disrespectful, but there can also be no argument and no negotiation and no doubt. The God they and we serve is also Lord over the powers that be. He and Nebuchadnezzar. And that is true whether these people acknowledge it or whether they're just full of themselves. The king, the Lord, is king over them. 
But the Lord is not only king over all earthly kings and rulers and politicians and judges and military and would-be opinion leaders and pop stars and bosses and bureaucrats, whatever else you may have. He is also sovereign Lord over nature and creation. Because whatever laws science may think it has discovered, it is ultimately the Lord who rules and overrules. And it is not just that he created it all and then sort of it runs by itself without him being a law unto itself that nobody, not even God, changes anymore. No, the Lord remains in control. The miracles of the Lord Jesus provide us with many examples. But already in the Old Testament we have, and undoubtedly Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego had, already seen and heard the plagues in Egypt and Joshua's long day and Hezekiah's shadow moving back on the steps of Ahaz and many other examples. Now, many people today are uncomfortable with the idea of miracles. Aren't the nature laws and can't science explain everything? And the philosopher David Hume was rather pleased with himself, having argued, he thought, convincingly, that miracles didn't happen. But the point is that if you believe God created the world, it is somewhat inconsistent to say that he can't do miracles. Because if you can make the rules, you can also suspend and change them. And if you don't believe that God created the world you have to come up with another solution that so far hasn't been found. But here, Shadrach, Mishach, and Abednego testify to Nebuchadnezzar, our Lord is sovereign over nature. Verse 17. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O King. And then the rest of the story neatly illustrates both points. First, the text made clear that the Lord rules Nebuchadnezzar. Because here he is, the mightiest man on earth. And hopping mad he is, furious with rage, we read in verse 13, and furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in verse 19. And what is it that his fury achieves? Well, he orders the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual. And they're now so hot that the soldiers who take Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego up, they die. Just to be sure that nobody can later deny or belittle God's miracle of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego surviving. That is what Nebuchadnezzar achieved. And secondly, the Lord rules nature. And for the soldiers, nature's law still apply. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come out and they are not harmed. No hair is singed, our text says. No clothes are scorched and not even the smell of fire. So all that Nebuchadnezzar achieves 
is that the miracle, the demonstration of God's might over him and over nature, becomes even more clear and more powerful. It is, as it says in Psalm 2, Why do the nations conspire, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and his anointed one. Because the Lord scoffs at them, and the one enthroned in heaven, says Psalm 2, laughs. So when listening to the faithful warning of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and their testimony of God's sovereignty, we heard about their faith in God and their belief in God as the sovereign Lord over the world, over creation. But that can be a statement that does not immediately and wholly involve us personally. It can be an acknowledgement of a fact. And therefore, we also need to listen to, in the second place, to the testimony of their faith in God, the Sovereign Lord, also over their personal, their very own life. Because we know the story and its ending. But when reading Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's answer, you have to realize that they didn't know how this would unfold. What they saw in front of them was a furious Nebuchadnezzar and a crowd that was out for their jobs and their lives, and what they saw was a very hot furnace. And they could not yet see the happy ending. And nevertheless, they gave their testimony, as you can read it in verse 18, but if not... If we are not delivered from that furnace, be it known to you, O God, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They go on to acknowledge the Lord as their sovereign Lord, whom they will follow and serve in their personal life. The American girl that I mentioned earlier Cassie Bernal was her name, was asked, do you believe in God? With a gun against her head, and she said yes. And she was shot. Only 17 years old. You may remember that event at Columbine High School, and two boys whose minds had been poisoned by them following some cult of Satan. Now, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were asked to bow before that image in front of the furnace. And they said no. And they did not know what would happen. Now, why could Cassie Bernal say yes to God? And why could Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say no to the king and yes to God? And why can we accept God's guidance for our life not knowing what will happen and where we will go or be tomorrow. We can only answer that question if we understand what is the purpose of life. 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refer to the God we serve. Because serving God is the purpose of our life, not the pursuit of freedom, wealth, or happiness. That may come into the bargain of serving God or not. And the Lord Jesus tells the devil when he was tempted with all the kingdoms of this world and their splendor, away from me, for it is written, serve the Lord your God and him only. And we heard the Apostle Paul, who could boast in his own achievements, as he tells us in Philippians 3, that he won't do it, but that all things Against me these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them rubbish that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him. Because, you know, we are so easily distracted. There is always something. There is our health, there is our family, there is our business. And genuine issues, they may well be. Not to be belittled at all. And then there is this mad rush for up and up and more and more, more wealth, more entertainment, or more responsibilities and more work. But do we know him? In reading our Bible, in meditating, in thinking, in prayer, and do we ask him to be the guide of our life? Cassie Bernal's yes reverberated around the world. And two days after her murder, family friends who were traveling in the backwoods of Ethiopia were told by the local people they met of her death and her witness. And God decided that that was enough. With this, her testimony, the purpose of her life was fulfilled. And after only 17 years, she could come home and rest. And from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we hear here after this story no more. They may have lived long or not. We don't know. And about Daniel, in the last verse of this book, it is told, he is told, but you, Daniel, go your way till the end, for you shall rest and will arise to your inheritance at the end of the days. Daniel had to wait a long time. His way past Nebuchadnezzar's madness, Balthasar's insults and folly, Darius' lion's den and terrifying visions. More than 80 years before he could go. And we? Whether we live in the depths of despair, seeing failure follow failure, or whether we live at the pinnacle of power, wealth, and happiness, we do not know what tomorrow will bring or when we go home. And we do not know what challenges we face in the days that come. They're unlikely to be a gun against our head or 
a fiery furnace. But they will come. Challenges at jobs, at school, at home, from sickness, depression, and disappointment. Or maybe challenges that will come from success, money, and temptation. But this we should always remember. God is the sovereign Lord also of our own personal life. And the decisions that we take on how we face these challenges, on our objectives, on our priorities, and on our yes and no, they should reflect that our purpose in life is to gain Christ, to be found in him, to worship God and serve him only. As it says in the hymn, take my life and let it be, consecrated Lord to thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my King. Take my intellect and use every power that thou shalt choose. Take my love, my Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. Because when such is our attitude to life and his word is the guide for living, then the sovereign Lord will give us rest. There is no amount of planning, calculating, or scheming that can give us rest. That we will achieve by following the Lord, as he himself says at the end of Matthew's gospel, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. And then there is the promise, and lo, I am with you always, even the end of the age. So finally then, and in closing, we have heard Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's testimony about their faith in God. And we saw that they testified to us that God is the sovereign Lord of creation. The world is his. And that God is also the sovereign over our personal life. We are his. Now then, let us briefly review the result of the testimony. Nebuchadnezzar's answer, his response in chapter, in verse 28. And Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command, and yielded up their body rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. And then he goes on to make his decree. There are two things worthwhile briefly noting. There is a delightful irony in hearing Nebuchadnezzar say, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Because you remember how he changed their names to names referring to his own idols, away from their original names which referred to Yahweh when they went to that school because they had to be names that referred to his religion and not to Israel's God. 
because they were to be culturally, politically, and religiously integrated. That was the point of these name changes. And now here is still using their new names. But the gods they refer to, Bel, Abu, and Nego, are not praised. Because the fashionable idols of that time and of today's time had proven to be irrelevant and meaningless. But the God of the Jews is praised. The God whose name he had wanted to erase from their names and their minds. And secondly, what a glowing tribute from this Nebuchadnezzar for these believers in verse 28. And should we not be longing to hear that said about us? You see, believing in God is not just agreeing that he exists. It is serving him only as our priority and purpose in life and gaining Christ and be found in him. Do you believe in God? You see, both death and also life can cast long shadows. And both the present and the future can hold dark threads. But who believes in the sovereign Lord of life and creation can say with the Apostle Paul and with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego already today in this life, as Paul states it in the letter to the Romans, I am persuaded, I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor heights, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let us pray. <clears throat>